teaching about finding the Old Testament through the Gospel of John. And I would love to tell you that all year round, I planned this entire series around this morning. But I'd be lying if I told you that. So instead, I'll just say, by the grace and mercy of God, this is pretty ironic that we've got this week's class today. Are you ready? Well, let me start by saying Happy Thanksgiving. I am really excited about Brent's favorite time of the year. Um, I'm, I'm very excited. I grew up and did elementary school, or most of it, and a good bit of middle school in, in upstate New York. And upstate New York considers itself part of New England. And so you're not surprised to find out that even though I didn't grow up in Massachusetts, and by the way, my Texas heritage requires me to say, born in Dallas, we just moved up there to do mission work for a while, came back to Lubbock. But uh, within the framework of that, uh, and if you're watching this on the internet from up there, uh, love up there. Okay, now, all to say, I was taught the first Thanksgiving was at Plymouth Rock on Cape Cod, 1621. I was taught that the pilgrims had those cool hats, big old belt buckles, that they had the Native Americans join them, and they had the big Thanksgiving celebration. I was taught that, but that's a myth. At least the way we tend to tell it. If you want to see our Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday of November, and that's when it is, it's the fourth Thursday in November, don't go back to the pilgrims. Go back to FDR. With one of the only laws I know that was passed and signed into effect the day after Christmas, December 26, 1941, FDR signed the law that made the fourth Thursday of every November National Thanksgiving holiday. Now, the idea of having a national Thanksgiving holiday did not begin with FDR. It actually goes back to Abraham Lincoln. In 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, which at its root involved the questions of whether or not the federal government's laws and the Constitution were binding upon all states, or whether or not states could assert their own rights in opposition to the federal law, so states want slavery, even though the federal law says all men are created equal, and there is an emancipation proclamation, and the federal law says there is no one in the United States of America that should ever be a slave. But certain states said, well, we've got our own rights to decide what we want, and certain slaves or states are slave states and others are not. In the midst of this war over slavery and states' rights, Abraham Lincoln in 1863 passes a national proclamation and declares the following. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. 
to these bounties which are so consistently enjoyed that we're prone to forget the source from which they come, I therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, recognizing different states had different laws about Thanksgiving holidays and things, and also those who are at sea, and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, because the Lincoln and, and the federal position was the Constitution binds upon all Americans, those at sea, those sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday, not the fourth, the last Thursday of November next, as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. So at the inception of this from Lincoln in 1863, the last Thursday of every November was celebrated as Thanksgiving Day. Till FDR changed it in 41. Now what happened? Why the change? Come on, we got to know this stuff. Well, FDR was president in 1933. And in 1933, the last Thursday was November 30th, the last day of the month. This caused great consternation among a lot of people, especially in the throes of the Depression. The reason why is, what happens the day after Thanksgiving? What is Friday? Shopping, Black Friday, right? Don't laugh. That was the concern. So, for example, the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, which at the time was called the Downtown Association of Los Angeles, wrote a letter to FDR. October 2nd, 1933. And in the midst of this letter, they said the following. It is an established fact that Christmas buying begins vigorously every year in the retail stores the day following Thanksgiving. And that the Thanksgiving to Christmas period is the busiest retail period of the whole year. So with Thanksgiving falling on the last day of November, it shortens the time for vigorous Christmas shopping. Please do it earlier. Make Thanksgiving earlier so we can have a longer season of Christmas shopping. Well, it didn't work. It didn't change things in 1933. Remember, they don't change till 1941. And here's the next problem. Six years later, as the calendar rolled, in 1939, FDR still president, still again, the last Thursday in November for Thanksgiving was going to be November 30th, the last day of the month. And everybody was going ballistic in retail sales. They say, move it up, move it up, move it up. So FDR indicates he may move it up. Well, that caused a huge backlash too. So now you get letters written to him in 1939 like this by the budget press who prints calendars. And they say to him, I'm afraid your change for Thanksgiving is going to cause the calendar manufacturers untold grief. 
If very many customers demand 1940 calendars to correspond with your proclamation, hundreds of thousands of dollars will be lost by the calendar companies, and in many instances it will result in bankruptcy because they've already been printing the calendars because people don't buy calendars in 1940. They buy them in 1939 to give them in 1940 and use them. Back in the days, this is how old I am, I used to have a calendar that wasn't on here. We, <laughs> actually, some, some, some techno wizards still do, but I'm not going to talk about them this morning. I will say that as a law firm, we used to get our calendars two or three months before the end of the year because we'd have to be making entries in the calendar. I mean, it's not like everything that's going to happen in January doesn't start till January 1st. So this is a real problem. The calendar manufacturers are saying, hey, we're going to go bankrupt because all of our calendars won't be any good that we've printed up and no one's going to want to buy them and we're going to have to reprint them all. Now you're saying, that's a mess. Well, it's not the only problem. What else happens on Thanksgiving? Miss Carolyn's birthday is today, by the way. Happy birthday, Miss Carolyn. She is 29. Again. And again. And again. And, and again. Just keep saying it. We love you. What else happens on Thanksgiving? Football! So President Roosevelt gets letters like this from New York University's University Board of Athletic Control saying, over a period of years, it's been customary for my institution to play its annual football game with Fordham University at Yankee Stadium at NYU on Thanksgiving Day. You start messing with Thanksgiving Day, you're messing with the football plans. You're messing with shopping. You're messing with calendars. Don't do it. So FDR does it, but he does it far enough in advance to take care of everybody so that they know it's coming and they can't bellyache. So if that's the case, what's this whole Plymouth Rock story? Where does it come from? Well, I tried to chase that down. I actually found on the wonders of the Internet a photographed copy of the journal from which we believe we find the evidence that the first Thanksgiving was at Plymouth Rock in Cape Cod in 1621. And I read it, and it wasn't easy to read because it was handwritten, and the spelling was atrocious. <laughs> Plymouth was spelled P-L-I-M-O-T-H. I used to drive a Plymouth. I know how to spell it. it. I read it. And admittedly, I'm, I'm reading it as quickly as I can. And I'm reading about Mr. Winslow and Mr. Bradford and all of this stuff. And I can't find it. So I get to the historians who say that's the first one. I find out where they say it happens. 
They tell me to go to page 75 of the manuscript. I go to page 75. <laughs> oh, I see what they're saying is the first Thanksgiving. But it's basically a harvest celebration that took place, we can't even tell, September, October, for three days where they celebrated the harvest. And they had 90 Native Americans and they had a certain number of people and they had just finished the harvest and so they had a harvest party. Well, and they were thankful to God, don't get me wrong, but they're thankful to God every day that they were alive. So it's not like some big Thanksgiving. This is just a harvest party. So I'm thinking, well, that's no big deal because I happen to have written a book on the Torah. And I know that on Mount Sinai, 3,000 years before, almost, God instructed Moses that Israel's going to have a harvest, party, festival, Thanksgiving, feast, and they're to have it every year. Moses and the Israelites beat the pilgrims by almost 3,000 years. Thanksgiving's been around for over 3,000 years. I want you to look at Exodus 23, 16, and then we're going to look at Leviticus 23, 39. Okay? Exodus 23, 16 first. Genesis, Exodus. 23, 16. Bam, bam, bam. All right, we'll start, uh, we'll start with verse 14. Three times in the year... You'll keep a feast to me. One, the feast of unleavened bread. Pesach, Passover. We talked about that last week. As I commanded you, you'll eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None of you appeared before me empty-handed. Two, you will keep the feast of of harvest. Now that's one of two harvest feasts. That's the early harvest, which would be the barley and grain. And then that's the first fruits of your labor, what you sow in the field. And then three, you'll keep the feast of in-gathering. In-gathering is a different word, but it, the Hebrew word just means harvest or gathering in of crops. At the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. This is the harvest celebration for olives, grapes, fruits, veggies, all of the things that are harvested, they come about in this great celebration. Now if we go to Leviticus chapter 23, you'll see an explanation for how this holiday was to be kept. Leviticus 23, starting with verse 33. It's also called, not just the Feast of Ingathering, it's also called the Feast of Booths, or some translations, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. So here it is, the same feast, but now a detail of it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel on the 15th day of the seventh month, 
And for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. It's a festival. It's a feast. It's a celebration that's seven days long. This is my kind of Thanksgiving. <laughs> On the first day, there's going to be a holy convocation. You don't do ordinary work. Whether it falls on the Sabbath or not, it's treated like a Sabbath day in that sense. The first day of this seven-day celebration, no work. For seven days, you present food offerings to the Lord. Food offerings to the Lord. Now, the plus side of that is, is when you're baking for the Lord, you bake for your family as well. So it's still a feast time. On the eighth day, you'll hold a holy convocation. So that's seven days long. The first day, no work. Every day, you're presenting to the Lord. You're feasting to the Lord. And then the eighth day, when it's over, technically, you'll hold a holy convocation. Again, no work. And you'll present a food offering to the Lord. It's a solemn assembly. You don't do any ordinary work. Now, this is the 15th day of the month. It continues down below. When you've gathered in the produce of the land, you celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days, first day solemn rest, eighth day solemn rest, and you'll take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You'll celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It's a statute forever throughout your generations. You'll celebrate it in the seventh month, dwell in booths. Do you know what the Hebrew word for booths? Well, a booth singular, well, I guess we start there. A booth that's here is a sukkah. A sukkah, plural is sukkot. All native Israelites shall dwell in sukkots. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in tents, booths, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the feast of sukkot, the feast of booths, was set out by God to Moses it's still celebrated today. If you know Mike and Debbie Riddle, they go to Israel about every weekend. Their favorite time to go is during Sukkot because it's, this, it's Thanksgiving. It's a festive holiday. But they go, they build tents. There's an entire section of, of, of rabbinical teachings in the Talmud on how you build your sukkah, how you build your, your tent. Can't be higher than this, can't be lower than that, can't be wider than this, can't be, I mean, elaborate rules, which trees, all of this kind of stuff. And they build them, even in Israel today. I got a good Jewish friend who's a Talmudic scholar that I went to high school with, Becky and I did, um, uh, and Joseph Skybell, Sukkah, Sukkot, he builds a Sukkah in his backyard, and they, they dwell in it, they eat their meals there. If this is a, a, a festivity 
that has been kept for a long time. Look, if you go, uh, if you go into Scripture, let me show you 1 Kings while we've got the Elmo going. 1 Kings 8. You remember David wanted to build a temple to God so that God would have a temple in Jerusalem and, and God said, no, you've shed too much blood. You don't get to build the temple, but your son Solomon can build it. That'll be his blessing. So Solomon builds this elaborate, incredible temple. And then they have the day of dedication. And the dedication, do you know when they chose for the dedication, the, the ribbon cutting? The Feast of Booths. Thanksgiving. Sukkot. The Feast of the Ingathering. Whatever you want to call it. Here it is, 1 Kings 8. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of fathers' houses before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David. This is what they're going to place in the temple. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. That's the feast. And so they used that feast a time of looking back with gratitude that God provided for them in the wilderness, why they dwell in tents, sukkah, that God provided for them during the year with the harvest. And so with gratitude and thanksgiving to God, they also celebrated at that time the temple building itself. You'll recall that, the, that after Solomon the northern ten tribes split off from Judah and the southern tribes. The northern ten tribes wind up being captured, dispersed, disappearing into the pages of history and the culture of the day by the Assyrian army. The southern kingdom lasts a bit longer, but is ultimately conquered by Babylon and carted off for a near century to Babylon. That kingdom of Judah gets to return from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, we read about those. And one of the first things that they celebrated was Thanksgiving, Sukkot, the harvest festival, the, the feast of the ingathering, whatever you want to call it, the feast of booths. And so we read about this. One of, the, one of the most profound places to read about it is in the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, his name means Yahweh remembers, Zachariah. Yahweh remembers, God remembers. God does not forget his people. So this is a prophetic book that talks about how God will not forget Israel and God will restore and God will send a Messiah and the book's very messianic. In the chapter, the last chapter is chapter 14 that talks about the coming of the day of the Lord. And in the process of this, we read the following. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a wide valley. You'll flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. On that day, there will be no light, cold, frost, 
It'll be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there'll be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. It'll continue in summer as it will in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And the whole land shall look like Lubbock. That's what it means. The whole land shall be turned into a plain. It's just flat. Lubbock. But Jerusalem will remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin. And the Lord, the, the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. And on and on and on. And then look what happens. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. If any of the families of the earth don't go up to Jerusalem in thanksgiving to worship the king, they will not get any rain. Water is associated here closely. If the family of Egypt, for example, doesn't go, there'll be no rain. This will be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that don't go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt, the punishment to all the nations that don't go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths is associated in, in Zechariah with the day of the coming Messiah. A day when God's truth will go and flow out to all nations. And those who choose to embrace the King will be blessed and those who don't will not get the water. That's prophetic. If we go back to the power, oh, y'all are a step ahead of me. So now, you got all of that? You with me? Then let's look at John chapter 7. Because John chapter 7 is Jesus celebrating Thanksgiving, the Feast of Booths. And you need to know about it before we read it. John chapter 7, Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Now after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. The last story had been Passover, so six months had passed. The Feast of Booths is tied to the seventh month. It's the harvest time for the ultimate harvest. But remember that Jews had a lunar calendar. And by that I mean the moon was the basis of the calendar, not our solar calendar, which is based in Western civilization on going around the sun. So theirs was, how often does the moon cycle, 28-day cycles? So the seventh month varies when we associate it with our solar calendar. 
So sometimes Sukkot, the end gathering, will be in September, sometimes October, but it's generally in one or the other. So the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So Jesus' brothers said to him, Hey, leave here and go to Judea. Now he is up north in Galilee. You got Samaria below that, and then Jerusalem and Judea is down south of that. Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Sukkot, because it was a feast of thanksgiving celebrated in, in Jerusalem, all the Jews from all over would go. The population of Jerusalem would swell tremendously as everybody took their tents, their sukkah, and, and pitched it and celebrated this week-long festival there in Jerusalem. He says, why don't you go? No one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. If you do these things, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. See, his brothers were at home working and they'd hear the rumors, oh, Jesus healed somebody. And they were like, yeah, right. I believe that one. Oh, Jesus fed 5,000 with the loaves. Yeah, right. I'm sure he did. And there were probably a few people who had loaves hidden under their togas that were pulling them out. Uh-huh. This is our brother, okay? And they don't believe him. By the way, side note. You read your New Testament, read the book of James. James is one of Jesus' brothers. All of his brothers believe him. All of his brothers believe him. After the resurrection, you don't fake that. You don't fake crucifixion and death and a resurrection. And his brothers all died martyrs' deaths because they would not deny that Jesus was Messiah. But they took some convincing. They weren't there yet. So Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast because my time's not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. I want to pause here for a moment and let's just deal with this text because critics and cynics point to this and say, Jesus was a deceitful little cuss, wasn't he? Told his brothers he wasn't going and then slipped away and went. Not the kind of Jesus you Christians say he was. Doesn't seem so morally perfect there, does he? Some people use this to justify telling lies for a greater cause. All of these people who raise all of these cynical comments get one response from me. It's study Greek. Because if you were reading this in Greek, none of those concerns would cross your radar. Let's talk Greek for a moment, please. Brothers say, hey, head up there. Why don't you do this stuff out in the open where everybody can look and verify it and check. If you're really Johnny 
I can do miracles, then get up there and do them where it can be validated, not just out here in the hill country. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Time doesn't matter to you on this. Your time's always here. Now, when we talk about time, we have clocks. I can tell you right now it is 1135. It's not 1134. It's not 1136. It's 1135 in the central time zone of the United States of America. And if I tell you, meet me at 1135 right here, you can meet me here because you can know what time it is too. Time is fixed for us and it's a chronological thing. It's a, tied to clocks. It's tied to calendars. We know by the Western calendar that today is November 24th. Also known as the birthday of Miss Carolyn. <laughs> That's her clapping. That's Hank moaning. The Greeks had two words for time. We, we don't. We have one. But the Greeks had two words for time. Let's see if I can figure out how to get two of these things up here at once. The Greeks have a word for time that is chronos. Chronos. And if you want to write that in English letters... That's C-H-R-O-N-O-S. Chronos. Chronos means clock time. Chronos means just chronology. We get that word from it. Chronograph, we get from it. It's, it's clock time. If Jesus had said, clock time, I'm not going. Calendar time, I'm not going. Yeah, maybe he's not going to that festival. But Jesus isn't talking calendar time or clock time here. Jesus uses a different word. The word for time that he uses is kairos. K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos. English spelling. K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos. Kairos means a fitting moment. It is a fitting time. It is an appropriate time. It's not chronology. It's not calendar or clock time. It's the right, it, 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 it's the fitting time. It's, it's a propitious time, propitious moment, a, a, a suitable time. And what Jesus is saying here is, this is not the propitious, the suitable, the fitting time for me to leave. I'm not going publicly with you to this place. Y'all can go anytime you want. For you, anytime's the right time. But I'm going to wait until it's the fitting time for me to go. And this is also emphasized here. Jesus says um, to them, you go up to the feast. I am not going up for my time has not yet fully come. I am not going up. The anabino there is the Greek word. Anabino just means uh, uh, going up, but it's in the present tense. And Jesus is saying, right now, at this moment, I'm not going up. This is not the fitting time for me to go. I'm going to go when the time is fitting. 
He's not saying I'm not going to the feast. He's saying, don't tell me, oh, if you're the guy doing all the miracles, go show yourself. This isn't my fitting moment. I'm going to go at my fitting moment. And then he does, and he goes privately, not publicly. You with me? You all tracking with me? Okay, I'm just, those are not really the thrust of the lesson, but I can't pass up pointing this out. All right, so his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews are looking for him. They're saying, where is he? There's a lot of muttering about him. Some are saying, oh, he's a good man. Others are saying, no, he's leading the people astray. Uh, and, and no one's talking openly about him because they're scared of the Jews. And then, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. Now, when's the middle? How long's the feast? Seven days. And kind of an eighth day at the end. So seven to eight days. So in the middle of it, he goes into the temple and he starts teaching. Now, I would love to tell you about this and, and what he said. It's, it's really interesting, but I'm going to shift us in the interest of time because we know the Kronos right now is 1139. And by Kronos, we know we end at 1155, though I get mercy for two or three minutes on the last day of the feast the great day this is the eighth day Jesus stood up and cried out if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me as the scripture is said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So with that, let's pause for a moment and talk about what happened every day of the feast until that last day. You can learn that in a variety of ways, but recognizing that Black Friday starts at midnight on Thursday, and it's time for Christmas shopping. Here's the book for you to buy for the nerd in your family. There's a collection of books, actually, by a gentleman named Alfred Edersheim. Born in Vienna in 1825. He was Jewish, brought up in a Jewish home, went to Hebrew school, learned to read Torah, studied the Talmud. Was a good Jewish young man who went off to Hungary in college, and uh, put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. A completed Jew, as my friends would say. And so he spent his days teaching, ultimately is even ordained by the Church of England, and teaches in England, and dies at uh, uh, a fairly young age in his early 60s, 60, mid-60s. But he wrote a number of books in English that are wonderful books to read to understand the Jewishness behind Jesus and our gospel stories in the New Testament. So I have a lot of people come up to me and ask me, how can I learn some of this Jewish background? And I tell all of them, all, just routinely, if you've not started reading Alfred Edersheim's books, it's a great place to start. Start, for example, with the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. 
every, every page you read, you're just going to be like, whoa, now it makes so much sense. If you want to know how Sukkot, the Feast of Ingathering, Thanksgiving, if you want to know how the Festival of Booths was celebrated in the time of Jesus, read the book, The Temple. I've pulled out a chapter 14 that deals with this, the information for you. Here it is. On each of the seven days of the feast, a priest drew water from the pool of Siloam. That's in Jerusalem. In a golden flagoon. That's a fancy old British word for a pitcher. <laughs> so a pitcher made out of gold. And he, the priest would, and the priest is dressed in all of his priestly regalia. And he goes and he gets a you know, scoop of the water from the pool of Siloam. And they march in parade through the... Macy's did not have the first Thanksgiving Day parade. They march in parade through the streets of Jerusalem with all of the regalia. And they've got trumpets, which would be the chauffeur horns, which are, they make this oh, 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 noise. Marching through the streets. And then they get to the temple and go into the temple gates and go up in the temple courts. And by the altar, there's a bowl. And the priest with great fanfare with the crowd ooing and aahing over the spectacle of the parade and having all the kids having come and everybody's got their little food and their candies and they're having a ball for seven days this happens and the priest takes the water and pours it in grandiose fashion into the bowl and a tube takes it to the base of the altar. Now these symbolic ceremonies were acted thanks givings for God's mercies in giving water in past days. We get water in bottles. We get water by turning on the spigot. You can get water just about anywhere. Not so then. They didn't have indoor plumbing like we've got. They would collect rainwater into these limestone cisterns. They had systems for the roofs because every drop was precious. They had water wells. They'd try to keep them clean. They'd have to draw water from those and haul the water. But water was a precious commodity. If it didn't rain, they didn't have built-in yard sprinklers. They didn't have irrigation for the crops. No rain, no food. So they're giving thanks to God in this festival Thanksgiving time period with the crops having been harvested for the rain that God supplied. But they're recognizing in the Feast of Booths that they're living in the tents to remember that God gave them water and took care of them for 40 years in the wilderness. God's always been a provider. So it's thanksgiving to the providing God as they pour out the water. But it's not only that. It's also the giving of rain in recent years. There's also an acted prayer for rain in the coming year. This isn't just thank you for what you've given us. But it's in Lord we're relying on you for tomorrow. 
May we have a bountiful crop next year. They remember the prophecy of Zechariah. You don't give thanks to God, you don't get the rain. So they, uh, uh, Edersheim says it's significant. The words of Isaiah were quoted and they were associated with the ceremonies. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. Not just salvation of your soul, but salvation for your life here. You're going to be able to live. You're going to have your needs met. The Mishnah which are rabbinic sayings that date from the time of Christ and around that time, written a couple hundred years later. The Mishnah says, He that never has seen the joy of this water drawing, that parade the whole thing, has never in his life really seen joy. Now, there's another set of ancient writings called the Jerusalem Talmud. And the Jerusalem Talmud connects these ceremonies and Isaiah 12, 3 with the Holy Spirit. So the teaching of the rabbis at the time of Jesus was one of, why is the name of it called the drawing out of water? Because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. According to what is said, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. So what do you have at the time of Jesus? For seven days, this process is done. On the eighth day, when the festival is drawing to a close, the great day, they didn't draw the water. But that is the day where Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, I've got to pause for a moment. And I've got to tell you, normally a teacher would sit down. Back then, teachers sat. Jesus stood up. In itself, that's significant. And he didn't just stand up. He cried out. Kradzo is the verb. Kradzo doesn't mean he spoke. Ipen, from Lego, they, they, Jesus spoke in other places. That word can be used. This is translated cried out. The, the, the NIV translates it cried out in a loud voice. Because the verb kradzo that's used here means to, to shout, to scream. It can be translated shriek, though I don't think that's appropriate for what Jesus was doing here. But the point is, Jesus stands up. Jesus yells out. Above all of the din, of all of the people, and all of the praise. So that no one will miss what he's saying. And Jesus makes this declaration. If anyone thirsts, you want water? For seven days you've had this parade. For seven days you've given thanks to the Lord. And you've prayed to the Lord for water tomorrow. You want water? Come to me. And drink. The scripture's talking about me and believing in me when it says, Out of his waters will flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit's coming because of Jesus. Salvation's coming because of Jesus. Your needs are met because of Jesus. 
When Jesus is making this declaration, if we do not understand the Thanksgiving period and the traditions of the people and what God has instituted, we miss out how loudly what Jesus is shouting should have hit us. The message is massive. You follow? All right, points for home. I've been using this Chinese takeout box. Is Dale Hearn here today? Hi, Dale. Dale writes me about every other week and says, I really just want to remind you how much I hate your points for home logo, <laughs> the take home. So Dale, in honor of you, I have changed it today. This is your Thanksgiving take home, okay? Thanksgiving take home. Let's get practical. We have Thanksgiving this week. Love the pilgrims, love the hats, belt buckles, the whole thing. Love the United States of America, love the fact that we celebrate. Love football. I actually enjoy shopping. Not on Black Friday. I can't handle the crowds. I like a whole different kind of shopping. Um, but what are we going to do with God's command for his people for all time to honor him during a time of thanksgiving? How do we thank God? for the many blessings he's given us. One easy way is to say, thank you, God. Mom is here. Mom taught us a song when we were real young. We'd sing it in church too. It was, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. That's a wonderful way to thank God. Dr. Bob and his wife, Kelly, have Dr. Bob's mother, Henrietta, here. Henny, how old are you now? You don't mind telling. 91. Just drove down from New Jersey with her 91-pound dog. One pound for each year. But it's something that Bob and Kelly have been thankful for. Bob's been trying to get his mom down here for a long time. He keeps telling me, well, she won't come yet, she won't come yet, she won't come yet, she won't come yet. She finally came. It's wonderful to thank God for our blessings. Having you here today, Henny, is a blessing to me. It's wonderful to have Miss Carolyn here. I got Tim Wilson and Ken Starr sitting right here, two of my dear friends. It's wonderful to have a yada. I can count blessings. Mark, Naughty. I can just go down the rows and start counting blessings because you're a blessing to me. But if we stop there, we're missing out on some important ways of thanking God for his blessings. I'm going to give you two that almost seem to be opposite each other, but I want you to consider them both. Number one, share God's blessings 
with other people. You give thanks to God when not for your own credit, but to His glory, you help those folks who need your help. That might mean something as obvious as feeding someone who's hungry. But it might be something more subtle. It might just be listening to someone who needs an ear to, to cry on, or a shoulder to cry on, an ear to listen. It might just be spending time with someone who's got no one to spend time with them. It might be helping take care of a family member. You know, growing up, I would try to help mom and dad. We had a problem child in the family, my little sister Holly. <laughs> Not a problem at all. A delightful woman of God. But if I could help out with her. You know, there are different ways to give help in thanksgiving. But when you help in the name of God, you're giving thanks to God. Now here's the second one. Enjoy what God has given you. Christianity is not to be equivalent to eating sour lemons. We are not to walk around with a grimaced face, puckered up, like we have just swallowed the most horrible food in the world. God has been good to us. And when we enjoy, I'm not saying be gluttonous. I'm not saying go overboard and be the center of the world. I'm not saying don't fail to love your neighbor as yourself. But I am saying enjoy what God's given you. And be thankful and acknowledge him by enjoying it. It's okay to eat something tasty. And to say thank you God for taste buds. To enjoy this. It is okay. You have my permission. When the food is being passed around on Thanksgiving Day, if someone hands you a platter with liver and onions, you can give it to someone else without taking any of it. And that's okay. Fill up on the good things. Second point for home. What are we going to do on Thanksgiving Day? I hope you take a time to be thankful to God and to truly list out his blessings. Don't get so lost up in cooking, food, prep, or figuring something out that you fail to take time to acknowledge his greatness and his goodness to you. And then our last point for home, when? Well, we've got to cram seven days into one. But we don't really, because shouldn't this be our attitude all the time? That doesn't mean don't take time to deliberately be reflective. God set up a season. He didn't want ingratitude the other days of the year. So we still have that season, but don't let it stop there. Okay? Yeah, that's like put all the myths together, like dogs really happen and turkeys are gobbling and they have the anyway let me bless you in the name of Jesus
Father, thank you so much for my friends here, those who watch by internet and listen by podcast. Thank you for so many people who work so hard to get this message dispersed. Here's our prayer, Lord. With gratitude in our hearts, we thank you for all you've given us. Those things that we see with our eyes and experience with our conscious thought, but also, Lord, the many ways you give and bless us that we don't see. Father, stir up in us not just gratitude, but joy. Knowing that in the midst of sorrows, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of all of the difficulties of this world, you are a providing God who has promised us to take care of us. And so we thank you for doing so in the past. We pray you will do so in the future in faith and confidence that we see in Jesus, your finished product for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Thanksgiving to y'all. Thank you.